We're back on Physique Science Radio. I'm your host, Lane Norton, and this week, I'm afraid our co-host, Sohi, is uh, out. She's not going to be able to make it. She's uh, doing some wedding planning stuff, so I'm afraid you guys have to listen to my voice uh, even more than normal, but that's okay. I've got uh, a very, very exciting guest for us, um, the defender of freedom himself, Dr. Michael Zordos of Florida State, I'm sorry, Florida Atlantic University. Mike did his PhD at Florida State University, which is where I first met Mike uh, when I was doing a conference up there. And uh, Mike is one of the foremost uh, researchers in the world on uh, periodization training. So we like to welcome him to the show. Mike, how are you doing? Doing great, Lane. It's an honor. So I really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. We uh, definitely were going to get you early into the rotation. I was actually. I was um, I was thinking about Dr. Uh, Linicky the other day, and uh, how at our, our camps he always laments the fact that there are five thousand nutrition questions to every one training question. And I realized the first four episodes we'd done of this radio show were on nutrition. I said, "Oh," because I thought about having, uh, and I will have uh, Dr. Bill Campbell on. I was going to have him on, have him talk about meal frequency. But then I said, "You know, we really ought to get a training show done here because." Uh, Otherwise, uh, otherwise, Dr. Linicky may start sending me hate mail. So that's how this that's how this transport. I, and I'd love to get him on the show with blood flow restriction, but I think um, you know periodization is obviously a nice introductory uh, kind of training show. So, uh, but for those of uh, our listeners who may not know more about you, uh, can you kind of give just a real brief introduction of, of who you are? Why did you get into weightlifting? Uh, and what, you know, what led you to become, you know, to get your PhD and eventually become a professor? Sure. Um, so, you know, I started off lifting, I guess, uh, like everybody else, just, uh, you know, wanted to get bigger and stronger. I was really young. I remember I was in eighth grade when I first started. And, uh, but my sport was soccer. So I always played soccer. I uh, went to college, uh, started my freshman year in 2003 at a small school called Marietta College, played uh, NCAA Division Three soccer for uh, four seasons up there. And that was great. But um, was always in the weight room, was always training, uh, you know, pretty unlike a soccer player. So I decided to switch my major to exercise science so I could really learn about it. I remember at the time being in class and asking questions, uh, you know, so, you know, Dr. So-and-so, um, let's say somebody were to do 10 sets of two on this exercise, you know, how would that correspond with muscle growth? And their response would usually be something like, Mike, that's very interesting, but why don't you keep those questions to yourself until after class? Uh, so after that, I went on and I was a graduate assistant strength coach at Salisbury University for a guy named Matt Nine, uh, a great guy, really helped me get my start. And uh, from then on, I, I enjoyed that. But uh, ultimately, I would get a lot of questions after I finished my master's from my athletes, you know, about the mechanisms behind what we were doing. And I just didn't feel that I had good answers. You know, I felt that my answers were very, very coach-like in terms of this is what has always been done. This is what I've been told, so this is what we're doing. And I didn't feel comfortable with that. And before Lane knew who I was, I certainly stalked him online, and I knew what he was doing. And so uh, I have to pay homage to him as he was the guy at the time doing his Ph.D. and doing things that uh, we all wanted to do. So um, contacted Florida State, uh, excellent research mentor, Dr. Kim, who I look up to, and he accepted me down there, and I uh, was able to uh, get into it, man. So uh, you know, I was able to really make a, uh, my research what I wanted to, and I have a lot of people to thank for that. Uh, it's interesting. I actually just shared an article on my um, page the other day, and and from Mark Ripto. And while I'm not, I mean, I, I would disagree with Ripto on a lot of things. It was basically an article about how most NCAA and pro strength and conditioning coaches are essentially terrible and have no idea what they're doing, and. Um, I, I sat down and started reading the article, and I found myself nodding my head a lot because I uh, – not that you were terrible when you were a strength and conditioning coach, but uh, that is just, the, this is the way we're doing it. It's always been done this way, um, and, you know, you need to – we want uh, – what I really loved was him bagging on functional training and, and, and uh, you know, this idea that you need to squat with, on an unstable BOSU ball or something like that because that will make you a better athlete. It's like people overcomplicate this shit so much. It's like – no, if, if you want to be better at your sport and, you know, recruit, you know, be more powerful, get stronger, that enables your muscles to produce more force and practice your skill a lot. So when you do your skill, you do it with more force. It's really quite simple. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I skimmed that article as well. And, uh, 
you know, I, I see it, I see it both ways. You know, I've been very blessed and fortunate to be around some excellent coaches, like yeah, absolutely. Uh, a good friend, Matt, who's at Salisbury, uh, Chuck Loby, who's here at Florida Atlantic, who I love just does a tremendous job. And uh, these guys really bridge the gap between science and application that you and I like to talk about. Uh, but unfortunately there are individuals that have been in these jobs for a long period of time as, as uh, Rip was talking about that uh, don't apply, um, you know, either a lot of science or a lot of logic to it. So it goes both ways and it's certainly yeah. that, that kind of thing in, in, in any field. But as you said, Lane, people tend to overcomplicate things. You know, the overarching concept with any type of training in exercise physiology is specificity. You know, if you want to get better at something, uh, you need to practice that. Um, so that's, that's really in, in any field you can strip it down to that basic level and have specificity and progressive overload. And if you got those two concepts, you're going to be in good shape. Yeah, absolutely. And for those of our listeners, we're actually on a video right now, so I can see Mike and he can see me. So Mike is definitely uh, somebody who practices science and application. His shirt right now is uh, is, a, is wearing his Florida State powerlifting shirt, and it's covered in chalk. So I know he's just finished squatting and, and deadlifting. Um, so, so Mike, so you're also a competitor. You compete in powerlifting. Uh, would you mind telling our listeners what some of your best lifts are? Sure. Um, I compete uh, as either a 74 kilogram, 163 pound, or 83 kilogram, 182 pound uh, lifter in the USAPL Federation. Um, my best lift is uh, out of the three is, is my squat. Uh, Big surprise. I, <laughs> the best squat I've recorded in competition is 230 kilos, 507 pounds, weighing about 77 kilos, uh, or about 169 pounds or so that day. So that was done. Uh, about a year ago here at a meet that we hosted, Lane, that you also participated in. Mm -hmm. uh, so the rest of my lifts are, are kind of mediocre, and that 507-pound squad is certainly uh, far from world-class, but uh, it is a lift I'm proud of, and hopefully uh, we can keep making progress. Yeah, that's, that's almost three times body weight, correct? Yeah, something like that. Uh, you know, I, I, I study exercise physiology. Uh, you know, I'm not in the math department, but uh, <laughs> hopefully uh, uh, hopefully that's about right. Yeah, so uh, about uh, 507 at a, a little under 170. So I'm uh, pretty proud of that lift. Yeah, very as well you should be. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, our topic today, which is periodization. Sure. Um, so can you just tell our listener, you, you touched on it a little bit in terms of progressive overload and specificity. Uh, but can you touch on, you know, what is periodization? Because we've got a lot of people out there, including a lot of coaches who couldn't spell periodization, much less implement it. So if you could give us kind of a basic run through of what periodization is, and then we'll kind of break down different types from there. That'd be awesome. Absolutely. So a general definition of periodization could be as follows. Periodization is varying training variables such as volume and intensity over the course of time. So a non-periodized program is very simple. Uh, we're gonna, we use examples as sets and reps because they're very easy to quantify. So if we take no periodization, you start training today and you have a competition 16 weeks from now and you do three sets of six that entire time and you never change. That's a non-periodized program. Now logic dictates to us without even looking at any research that that's not going to be the appropriate way to progress. If you are a beginner, and we'll talk about varying training statuses later on, uh, but if, if you're a beginner and you're starting out and you have progressive overload, will you make progress with a non-periodized program? Of course. However, a periodization program would be something if you started 16 weeks from now, and let's say every four weeks you vary. You were doing sets of 10 during the first four weeks, then you move to sets of eight the next four, then sets of six. So as your volume or the amount of repetitions you were doing decreased, your intensity or the percentage of 1RM that you would utilize would increase. So in short, non-periodized is no variation. Periodization is essentially just variation. Now within that, and I'm sure Lane will ask me, we have varying concepts, whether it's linear periodization, black periodization, undulating periodization, and so forth. Yeah, and the example you just gave, I think, would be kind of a, an example of linear periodization, correct? So that's... Yes. yes, sir. Yeah, it'd be linear periodization. So if you were to break down training, you could quantify different periods of time and have uh, terminology for this. So for example, uh, about a month or let's say four to six weeks of training, we would call a mesocycle. So linear periodization really dictates varying these repetition ranges across different mesocycles, meaning if you did hypertrophy type training for one mesocycle, uh, for example, four weeks, strength training for one mesocycle, 
about four weeks, and then power training from one mesocycle about four weeks. So that would be a gradual decline in volume and a gradual increase in intensity. Okay, so and let's let's uh, define those real quick. So hypertrophy would be like a ten to fifteen repetition range, that sort of thing. Strength, you'd be looking at you know anywhere from probably one to five reps would be my guess, and sure. then uh, power would be in that lower rep range as well, but with lighter weight and done for speed. It'd be for explosiveness. So, and that's how we would define power. And there's different recommendations based upon sports to define power. Um, but those would be the traditional, and I say traditional because I'm sure we'll talk about this as well. The traditional recommendations for hypertrophy are in the moderate to high repetition range, and then strength would be in the lower repetition range. So in a traditional linear model, yes, you would start with hypertrophy type of training first or higher volume training, gradually decline over the course of various mesocycles, and intensity would start low during mesocycle one and gradually increase as you reach your competition. Interesting. And so... There's also what's called now there's there's linear periodization has been shown to be superior to non-periodized programs in terms of increasing strength and performance and hypertrophy in, in intermediate to advanced people. However, yes. uh, also has its drawbacks, correct, when you're comparing to something like a non-linear periodized training program. It, cer- it certainly does. And, and whenever I start off a talk, I always pose a question that, that Lane actually posted recently, uh, and, and I was grateful that he did. And that question is, to ask, not does it work, but is it optimal? Now, when I ask this question, I say this because we have to realize that optimal is unattainable. We ask this question because it always provokes more research, more teaching, more learning, more discussion. We know we can never reach optimal. It it doesn't exist. We can't get there. But the point of the question is to allow us to keep discussing things and hopefully moving forward. So, in trained lifters, linear periodization will show superior results to no periodization. However, that certainly doesn't mean that a linear periodization protocol is the optimal or best protocol. The linear periodization protocol still has drawbacks. So since the variation, as we just discussed, is only about one mesocycle or every four to six weeks, while that's more variation than no periodization, it's still very infrequent, only four to six weeks. So that's when we move into various models, such as weekly undulating periodization, or more specifically, daily undulating periodization, where we would undulate or change volume intensity and repetition ranges every single training session. And then there's really endless possibilities within those concepts to uh, design training protocols. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, and then, you know, so a lot of times people will ask me, <laughs> well, when Mike and I were talking, we're talking about concepts too. It's important to understand it's not a set routine. You know, you can, you could do, um, uh, linear periodization with 10, 15 reps, then 10 reps, and 5 reps. You could do it with 40, 20, 10. You could do it with 10, right. 8, 6. You could, I mean, you could do it all different ways, right? So it's important to understand that the, the amounts of ways to implement periodization are endless. Um, but the important point is that you are doing some sort of uh, programmed changes in your training that aren't, it's not just haphazard where, oh, well, like the typical bodybuilding trick. Well, I, I did a hack squat yesterday, so I'm going to confuse my muscle and I'm going to go in and I'm going to do, you know, uh, one legged squats on a BOSU ball. You know what I mean? So, um, that's, that's, that's not periodization. That's no, buffoonery. Absolutely not. And, and this brings up a, a, a larger point. Now, if we look at the scientific literature, as Lane just said, it gives us a concept. So the concept is more variation is going to be superior to less variation in terms of when you vary volume, intensity, and so forth. However, that doesn't mean you should take a study and perform the protocol the exact way it was written in that study. That study likely had to make concessions to design that protocol for feasibility of research. Therefore, we take a concept, undulating periodization, and then we have to apply it to the specific lifter. So this brings us to start talking about design. As Lane said, there are endless possibilities. So let's take a basic daily undulating periodization training block. Remember, our concept of daily undulating means that we alter repetitions or volume and intensity every session. Now, we take a frequency of three times a week. Let's say Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You don't have to train three times a week, right? We will talk about that in a moment. 
but it's very easy to quantify when we say this. So three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Let's say Monday you were doing hypertrophy training, right? Wednesday you were doing power training, Friday you were doing strength training. That is daily undulating periodization. Now the possibilities of the specific repetition ranges you use are absolutely endless, right? So I look at it, there are two ways to design a DUP block, right? Monday hypertrophy, Wednesday power, Friday strength. That's what I like to call undulating the training phases, right? One distinct hypertrophy, one distinct power, one distinct strength day. That's uh, option one. Option two is what I like to call undulating the repetitions, meaning the repetition ranges don't have to fit neatly into hypertrophy strength or power, but it is still undulating periodization. For example, on Monday, if we did 15 repetitions, on Wednesday, if we did 10 repetitions, and on Friday, if we did five repetitions, if you note, both the 10 and 15 are within the hypertrophy range, but because we have an undulation of 15, 10, and 5, the literature still classifies this as daily undulating periodization. So, option one, undulate the typical training phases. Option two, undulate the repetitions. Then, within that, especially option two, undulating the reps, think about this. You could have an undulation pattern of 15, 10, and 5 throughout the week. It could be 10, 5, and 3. It could be 8, 6, and 4. It could be 5, 3, and 1. It never ends, right? And that is only a frequency of three times a week. Somebody will say, hey, I've been doing this for a while, but I can't do DUP anymore. Um, so I, so I, I, I can't train three times a week anymore, excuse me. So I can't do DUP. I have to do something else. <laughs> okay. How many days a week can you train? You can train twice. Perfect. We're going to do uh, 10 reps on Monday. We're going to do five reps on Friday. Perfect. That's daily undulating periodization. That's the concept. So the beauty of it is you pick how many days a week you can train and then you work the concept in around what you can commit to. Yeah. And then, yeah. And even with, even with two day, even if you had two weeks, I mean, you could still do three undulations. You could yes. do Monday yeah. of Monday of week one, you do 15 reps, then Friday do 10, then Monday do five and then Friday do 15 Absolutely. and then Monday do Absolutely. 10 and then Friday do five. And so you're, you're still undulating the same form. It's just in a different frequency. So yeah, people like Mike, when Mike gives talks, he'll always get up there and say, I'm going to give you the DUP because so many people ask him for the DUP and you guys, unfortunately, most people have been reading muscle magazines too long. They think that when something has a name to it, that it's just a specific routine and that's not it at all. This is a this is a particular way of programming. And within that, there are thousands and thousands, probably millions, well, really endless ways you can program it. So um, we're giving you concepts. So I'm gonna, I think it's a good uh, place for a break uh, so we can have our sponsors get in here. And then when we come back, we're going to talk a little about Mike's research into daily undulating periodization. You're listening to... Hey guys, Lane here. Well, you all know how much I love variety in my diet. I can't stand eating the same bland food every single day. That's why I love www.myoatmeal.com. It's an amazing website where you can go and customize oatmeal. I know, I know, I know. Why would I want to go customize oatmeal? I can eat it right out of the bag. Well, let me tell you why. MyOatmeal.com has 22 billion combinations of flavors and ingredients. You heard me right, 22 billion combinations. Whether you're picking out a pre-made blend or making your own customized blend, they have all kinds of flavors. Want red velvet cake? No problem. Snickerdoodle? You can make it happen. Butter rum? Oh yeah. Cheesecake? You can get it done. And you have all kinds of additives you can add. Apples, raisins, pears, nuts, all kinds of seeds. And you can sweeten it any way you want. Need to eat gluten-free? No problem. They've got it. The best part of it all? The macros are listed as you're customizing your blend. And they change depending on which ingredients you add. Eating a little bit lower carb? No problem. Choose ingredients that make your carb count lower. Need more protein? 
add higher protein ingredients. You can customize your blend to make it almost any breakdown that you want, and the prices and macros change as you change your blend. So go on over to www.myoatmeal.com and check out some of the blends that have already been made, or be adventurous and make your own. That's myoatmeal.com. Check it out, guys. Hey guys, one of the things that's always on my mind is how can I give back to the industry that has done so much for me? That's why we formed the BioLane Foundation. The BioLane Foundation is a philanthropic initiative to raise money for grad school level research that is going to contribute to the fitness industry. And 100% of all your donations will be paid out to students. If you'd like to donate, you can go to BioLane.com, click on the About tab, and click on BioLane Foundation, and you can put your donation in through there. Or, if you're a student and you'd like to apply for a grant, go to BioLane.com, click the About tab, BioLane Foundation, and you can find the applications online there. Thank you guys so much, and I'm looking forward to all the great research that comes from these donations. You're listening to Physique Science Radio with Lane Norton and Sohee Lee. If you like what you hear and you'd like to learn more about us and read some of our articles, please visit my website at www.biolane.com and Sohee's website at soheefit.com. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you listening and hope to hear more from you in the future. We're back on Physique Science Radio. We're talking to my buddy, Dr. Mike Zordos at Florida Atlantic University. Coming to you live, well, not live because this is recorded, but right <laughs> now I'm live in his office at Florida Atlantic University talking to him. So, Mike, you talked about um, undulating repetition schemes with DUP or even undulating the phases. You've actually done specific research into undulating the phases. Can you talk about what your research was and what you guys found? Sure, absolutely. So our study was the first study in trained individuals to compare two different models of daily undulating periodization. So if we remember back to our question, not does this work, but is it optimal, we continue to build our case. Linear periodization is superior to no periodization. Undulating periodization is superior to linear periodization. So is the current model that exists in the literature of daily undulating periodization the most optimal protocol of all time? Of course not. That's ridiculous. So we have to continue to try and optimize the, the model of DUP that is in the literature. So our study was the first in trained individuals, and we used the powerlifting team and weightlifting clubs at Florida State University, and we had two different models of daily undulating periodization. So if you recall, option one was to undulate the phases. So far in the literature, and we call this the traditional DUP model, so far in the literature, the traditional DUP model has always existed, which on Monday, we'd have a hypertrophy day. On Wednesday, you would have a strength day. And on Friday, you would have a power day. So hypertrophy, strength, and power order throughout the week. Now, let's take a look at this traditional model of DUP, if you will. Think about your own training and think about what hypertrophy is. Hypertrophy is high volume. So let's say five, six, seven sets of 10, a high damaging protocol that you would have. Now, that's on Monday. Strength training is your heaviest day. That's on Wednesday. That hypertrophy day, that causes a lot of damage and a lot of soreness. So if you're really doing this damaging protocol, as is done in the literature, and then only 48 hours later, you're expected to lift 85, 90% for maximal repetitions, ask yourself, are you going to be very good at that? Probably not, right? You're still probably going to have a lot of damage and fatigue and soreness only 48 hours later. So our model, what we call the modified model, it aimed to have more separation between hypertrophy and strength. So the traditional model, again, hypertrophy Monday, strength Wednesday, power Friday. We kept hypertrophy on Monday and then moved the strength day all the way to Friday and inserted the power day in the middle of the week. So in the modified model, we had 96 hours rest between hypertrophy and strength, but we kept the three-day-a-week frequency with the power or speed day to still allow for skill acquisition and more training volume. So our question was, our research question, in the modified model, when there's 96 hours rest between hypertrophy and strength as opposed to 48 hours rest in the traditional hypertrophy strength power model, would there be more recovery and more total volume performed when there was more separation, right? And I think that seems pretty logical. If you have 96 hours rest 
and we say go in on the strength day and I want you to perform as many repetitions as you can at a given intensity, will you perform more volume? And we found that the modified model, when hypertrophy and strength were spread out, did perform more volume and that led to more strength. So this brings up a bigger question. People will say, okay, so your modified model, right, of hypertrophy, power in the middle, and then strength on the end of the week. Well, this is the optimal model of DUP and the most optimal model of training that you can do. And when somebody says this to me, I, I almost have a heart attack. And I say, no, that's, that's not at all what we found. All we found is that this model provides superior training volume than another model. Now, volume is the factor of volume and intensity and frequency. Volume is the factor that is most closely associated with muscle growth and increases in strength. Therefore, we found that one model was better than another for volume. However, we might have found the second worst daily undulating periodization model that has ever existed. <laughs> I, highly, I highly doubt that. But the point, as Lane said at the beginning of the show, is to take away the concept. The concept is to set your training protocol up so that you can perform the most volume in a given week or the most volume in a given mesocycle a month over the course of a year. Not the most volume in a day. Anybody can go to the gym and do 20 sets of 20 today, but you're not going to be walking, let alone lifting weights for a long time after that. That's an interesting point, Mike. Um, we, I, I always, when I give talks, I talk about the hierarchy of what's important, okay? Yeah. When I talk about nutrition, I always say, I think I talked about this in previous episodes, that um, you know, hard work and consistency, uh, now I know you, you, eat all, you eat all the macros, um, all but for... But, but, um, uh, you know, you know, hitting your daily macros consistently over the course of time is the most important thing in terms of making body composition improvements with regards to nutrition. Now, uh, in anything that sabotages that, okay, so there are, that doesn't mean it's the only thing that has a, has an impact, right? It just means it's the most dominant. Exactly. But that means that you don't want to sabotage your thing that's at the top with something that's of less importance, okay? So I always say, like people say, well, you can't tell me a Pop-Tart is better for you than a sweet potato. I said, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying right. to say is if having that one Pop-Tart keeps you from going nuts and blowing out your diet, um, then it's better than trying to consistently just eat sweet potato and chicken. And then when, you're, when you have one little mistake, you blow out and go crazy, right? So that Absolutely. consistency is more important. So that would be kind of a, a good analogy to, to volume here. If, uh, if volume is most important, uh, then the biggest thing is to keep, is to make sure you're doing training that is not gonna impede your, your volume accumulation. So people will always say, well, what about training to failure? Training to failure has been shown to have these benefits on muscle hypertrophy. Well, yes, that's true. But if you, for example, go to failure too often, it is going to absolutely impede your total training volume. And yes. therefore, it's going to actually have a negative effect on what you could do muscle growth wise. And this awesome. is why when we talk about when, when we use failure, and we use it relatively sparingly compared to most training programs, but sure. we will use it because there are benefits to it. Um, but if we're going to do it, it's typically going to be on the last set of an exercise. Yeah. Because if you think about if you've ever done training to failure, maybe, for example, my squat max is 650, best, best squat I've ever done in my life. So if I put 500 on, I could probably do 500 for 12, maybe 13 reps uh, sure. if I was fresh. Now, let's say I did that. Uh, what would I get the next set? Maybe six, maybe seven. And then the set after that, maybe three or four. Uh, I mean, it, it shows that you pretty much go down kind of linearly after that. Um, now what if I had just said, okay, I'm just going to do sets of 10. I'm just right. going to do sets of 10, keep two reps in the tank. I could probably do five, six, seven sets of 10, uh, before I really got to the point where I was going to hit failure. So yep. if I put the failure on the last set, um, now I get the benefits of volume and the benefits of failure. I know that's kind of a, a an off topic diatribe, oh. but a lot oh. of people kind of confuse the yeah, so I, I think, Lane, what you said was really perfectly appropriate. So if we give the example uh, of a daily undulating periodization block with a frequency of three times a week with an undulation pattern Monday, Wednesday, Friday of eight reps, six reps, and four reps. 
So let's say we want to figure out what intensity or what percentage of 1RM we want to work at for our eight repetition sets on Mondays. Now we have five sets of eight, and I give you 70%. Well, the lifter might say 70%. Hey, man, I can do that for 12 to 15 reps. Sure, you can for one set. But if you do that for one set and you get burned out after you do 12 reps on the first and then you drop to seven on the second and then five or six on the third and so forth, well, there's two problems with this. One, you're probably going to do less volume than if you just repeated that for eight reps. And two, you're causing more damage. If you're causing more damage, that's going to fatigue you and you might not be able to do those, let's say, six sets of six on Wednesday and then let's say seven, eight sets of four on Friday. And remember, muscle growth is not mostly related to damage. It doesn't mean it's not important at all, but it's mostly related to training volume. So you want to set that up not to maximize damage, but to maximize volume. Now, there's a few ways to continue to break this down. One thing that we're going to get into is that if you notice, I've been saying a DUP block, meaning that daily undulating periodization and block periodization are not mutually exclusive concepts. Even undulating periodization, block periodization, linear periodization, and autoregulation are not mutually exclusive concepts. So, exactly. right, if we take the concept of daily undulating periodization or periodization in general, people say, oh, periodization doesn't work for me. Yes, it does. Your physiology is not special, right? It, it, it works for you. The question is, within a periodization model, what needs to be individualized? Something that needs to be individualized is on Monday, if I say I want to do eights with 70%, well, some people might be better at performing reps than other depending on their training status. Our, uh, uh, my colleague here, Dr. Norton, is exceptional at doing repetitions. So <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm going to program eights for him, he can do repeated bouts of eights all day at around 75%, maybe even a little higher. I have some lifters that cannot maintain more than 65% at eights for multiple sets. There's nothing wrong with either of those. It's just the individual differences in that case. And one way to mitigate going too heavy and causing too much damage is to use autoregulation within your DUP setup. Autoregulation on its own is not a theory of training. Rather, autoregulation can be used to program the exact load and intensity within a periodization model. So if we have a block of periodization and we call it a volume block, well, autoregulation is a perfect tool to use because instead of saying, hey, I want to do five sets of eight at 70% on Monday, I can say I'm going to do five sets of eight at an eight RPE, meaning I feel that I have two repetitions left in the tank because it's a volume block, remember. And a volume block is not predicated on going to failure. It's predicated on doing repeated bouts. That way, you ensure that you're staying at least two repetitions short of failure, meaning you might increase or decrease the load during the session, but you stay two repetitions short of failure. Thus, you know you're not going to beat the hell out of yourself, for lack of a better term, and cause a lot of damage. If you do that, you're doing volume without too much damage, and then you can train again, let's say, the squat on Wednesday, because if you're not squatting, what are you really doing with your life? And then you can train that squat again on Friday. Now, what you've also done, in addition to increasing your volume, you've increased your frequency. And make no mistake about it, these lifts, the squat, the bench press, the deadlift, these lifts are skills. And the more that you do them with appropriate volume and periodization, of course, the better that you will get over time. And if you're a bodybuilder and your main goal is muscle growth, if you get better at these lifts, what does that mean? It means you can overload more. If you can overload more, you are doing more volume and you will see more growth. So it's very important about how you break this down. So I know that was a lot in a few minutes there, but the point is you, we can no longer think about undulating periodization, block periodization, and autoregulation as mutually exclusive concepts. They can and should be integrated together, and this is where our research is going. So I'll stop for a second because I'm sure Lane will have some insight on this, but I do want to get back to how we should progress from week to week in a moment because all I've really done now is given you okay here's one week but how do we progress the intensity and the load from week one to two and two to three and so forth yeah good points Mike so I have three points and first is you know um, Mike has done my programming before and uh, he uh, I actually worked with Ben Escrow this last um, uh, for, for, for nationals who 
obviously uh, Ben and Mike are two sides of the same coin. They they talk every day, and uh, Ben is no, doing nothing but implementing these things Mike talks about, and we did that for Nationals. So um, we did, ran different training blocks. So my as I was progressing, so I do a four, my first four-week block might have been undulating 10, eight reps with 10, eight, six. The next four week block was nine, seven, five, and then eight, six, four, and then seven, five, three. And then, exactly. you know, down to by the last block before nationals, I was conservative maxing each week with singles. Yeah. Um, and so the purpose was that of that was as the meat built up, as it got closer, um, I'm getting more specific. I'm, I'm increasing the intensity, but I'm still undulating repetition schemes. I'm still getting, you know, some higher-ish reps, even though at the end it's, you know, my high reps are five reps. But I think that's what kind of what you're talking about there, right, Mike? Absolutely. There's yeah. two points on this. One, um, you know, I, I do talk to Ben at least once a day every day, and it's not enough in my opinion. And sometimes <laughs> I like to stare at the squat rack and imagine that he's staring at the squat rack at the same time. Uh, <laughs> The second point is, is is what you just said, Lane, is that if we think about the concepts of undulating periodization and block periodization, well, within a DUP setup, you can have a volume block and you can have an intensity block. So something like a 10-8-6 undulation pattern would be considered a volume block because with higher repetitions, it's much easier to achieve a higher level of volume. Now, you might do that block. Uh, or multiple volume blocks when you're 16, 20 weeks out from a competition. As you get closer to that competition, in those last four to eight weeks, you might be doing an intensity block. An intensity block undulation pattern might be something like 6-4-2 or 5-3-1. And again, you can program specific intensities or you can use an auto-regulation setup on an RPE scale of 1 to 10 to determine that load. And we have to stop and thank our good friend Mike Desherer for really bringing this RPE scale to light, you know, back about six, seven, eight years ago now. He's really the guy at Reactive Training Systems who's doing great things that really brought this uh, uh, scale to light for us. So we have the volume and intensity block. So that's how we can look at the concepts or integrating undulating periodization and block periodization really together um, in the same training model. Very cool. Now, I, I do want to touch on uh, a couple points. When we talk about volume, volume is important, but it's also – you know, some people will hear this and they'll say, well, why don't I, if volume is the only thing that's important, um, why don't I just put 100 pounds on the squat bar and do 20 sets of 20? And that's right. easy, and I'm getting way more volume than going intensity. And I, I think the point would be that there probably is a minimum intensity threshold where volume becomes the dominant factor. Would you agree with that? I, I would agree with that. I think that there likely is. I think there is some data. And actually, whenever you have Dr. Linicky on, he's been part of some of this research, so he might be a better guy to ask than me. Um, but if you're equating for volume uh, with very, very low loads, uh, some studies do show uh, equal hypertrophy with, let's say, 30, 40, 50 percent there as opposed to more moderate, 60, 70 percent. However, this is in untrained individuals. So these are going to be more novice individuals, which brings to a larger point that if you're a novice individual and you're trying to figure out, do I want linear periodization, do I want undulating periodization, do I want block periodization, you're thinking too much, right? All you need to do is stay short of failure, have a decent amount of frequency to practice the skill, work on your technique, and lift weights. Your strength will go up and your size will go up a ton. Don't worry about it. Periodization is really not all that important for novice individuals. But getting back to the original point here, uh, in terms of is there an intensity threshold that volume needs to be at, I would say for trained individuals, yes. Can I give you an exact number of uh, 60 or 62 or 57 or 71? I can't. I'm not smart enough to know that. Um, but, certain, but at a certain point, you are so unspecific to the motor unit recruitment that you need to utilize to lift heavier weights that you might impede some of your strength. And if you're impeding some of your strength, that means you will not be able to progress as much. And if you cannot progress as much, you're not going to overload as much or optimize your volume. So I would suggest that we do need to stay at a certain intensity threshold, whether it's, again, 60, 62, 70, 67. I don't know. At a minimum, though, to continue to progress over time. Yeah, I, I, two points to that. I tell people that I, I think if you're above 60%, you're probably fine. That I would agree. Above 60%, and it may be lower, but I, I say for it to be safe, above 60%, I think that, that, that volume is definitely the dominant factor, no question. Sure. Um, now, like you, you brought up an interesting point, and this before I even knew anything 
about about periodization. I always thought, well, if overload is so important, maybe uh, you know, maybe it's not strength isn't important in terms of gaining muscle. But if I don't get stronger over time, how am I going to create more overload over time? Unless you know, you can only add so much volume. You know what I mean? So it's important to be able to create more overload through strength as well. Absolutely. Now we've talked about volume a lot or total volume. And if you're unfamiliar, the way to calculate that would be sets times repetitions times weight lifted. So volume will certainly be relative to the individual. On an absolute scale, Lane is a lot stronger than me. So his sets times repetitions times weight lifted is going to be more because he's stronger. Now, we have to look at it on a relative scale. If I'm doing five sets of eight at uh, 70% and Lane is doing five sets of eight at 75%, well, he, Lane is now relatively doing more volume, not just on an absolute scale. So we have to realize that's relative to the individual. So you can't, somebody says, well, what's, how, how many pounds of volume should a person do each week? I can't say that because it depends on training age and making sure they progress appropriately. Right? You might be doing 10,000 pounds of volume with a frequency of twice a week on the squat, and that's great. Right? Maybe one day you'll do 50,000 pounds with four times a week on the squat, but you can't go from 10,000 to 50,000. You have to progress appropriately and gradually over time. Too much of a jump too soon in your training age is certainly not a good idea for long-term progression. And also comparing within uh, uh, or between individuals, myself to Lane needs to be a relative comparison, not an absolute comparison. That's actually I'm gonna we're gonna take a break real quick because I want to expand on that point of progressing appropriately and 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 comparing within your own self and not between other individuals because that's a great point. So we're gonna take a break. We'll be right back on Physique Science Radio. Hey guys, you know me and you know I love cooking up macro friendly option meals. But sometimes when I'm always on the go. That's just not an option. So when I'm on the go or can't cook a meal, I love Quest Bars. You know I love protein and fiber, and these are packed with 20 grams of high-quality protein and super high in fiber. And it's easy to stay on target when you've got Quest Bars that you can bring with you anywhere. They're delicious compared to other bars that taste like bricks and leave you feeling gassy and bloated. So pick up a bar of Quest Bars today at questnutrition.com, GNC, and Vitamin Shop. Also, follow them on Instagram, at Quest Nutrition and YouTube.com slash Quest Nutrition for great recipe ideas to keep you on your goals but eating delicious. Hey guys, many of you out there know I spend a lot of time bagging on bad coaches. And certainly, there's more than enough of those to go around. But a lot of times people ask me who I do recommend. Well, one person we can recommend wholeheartedly is Paul Ravella of Pro Physique. Paul has received more referrals from me over the last two years than any other coach, and with good reason. Paul is competent, professional, caring, and carries himself with a lot of integrity. If you hire Paul, you're going to be getting the very best at a great value. Paul is also one of my closest personal friends, and I can say with absolute certainty I feel 100% comfortable with referring my closest friends and family to him, because I've done that. Paul Ravella of ProPhysique.com. Check him out, guys. We're back on Physique Science Radio. We're talking periodization, volume, and all things training with Dr. Mike Zordos. And Mike just brought up a great point about we've been talking about how great volume is and how great periodization is and all these different things. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we know that not everybody's going to listen to this whole podcast. And so halfway through, somebody is already starting to do their 50th set of squats because <laughs> – Lane and Mike told me that volume was the most important thing, so I'm going to do volume until the end of time. And uh, so, you know, Mike brought up the great point that you have to progress appropriately. You can't, you can't just um, go from squatting 10,000 pounds of volume. And so for those who are unfamiliar, volume is very simple to determine. Volume is weight lifted times number of sets times number of reps. Very, very easy to determine, okay? So uh, I think... You know, if somebody's lifting 10,000 pounds, my, my actually, my squat volume right now is right around 50,000 pounds a week, and I squat three times a week. And, um, you know, if somebody who was used to doing 10,000 pounds went into that, um, they're likely going to hurt themselves. Um, and, and what I always tell people, it's kind of like when you're dieting, 
um, in that, you know, you want to, you want to lose body fat on the maximum amount of calories you can. And then when you stagnate, you should progress appropriately. Like you don't just want to drop your calories to a thousand a day just because you hit a plateau. You want to progress, you know, slowly and kind of try to lose at a, at a, at a modest pace. And I think the thing, same thing is true for, true for training. If you stagnate, you shouldn't just jump up your volume extremely high. You should progress it appropriately. You should add in a little bit more. Um, would you agree with that, Mike, uh, based on your experience? I wholeheartedly agree with that. And for those of you listening overseas, uh, 50,000 pounds is about 23,000 kilos. Um, I would wholeheartedly agree with everything that you just said, Lane, in terms of not progressing too quickly. But if you can make progress and you're a beginner on a certain more minimal amount of volume, that's great. Take yes. advantage of that. Absolutely. Awesome. Take advantage of that because if you progress too quickly, I promise you it might be nice in the short term, but you're going to regress after that because you're not ready for it. So take advantage of that. One, hey, you're going to have less training days. You're going to spend less time in the gym. You're going to have more time to do other things, right? So take advantage of training with less volume. Progress appropriately over time. Because at a certain point, you might progress too quickly and say, well, I have nowhere else to go. I can't exactly. increase anything. Right? You, you want set to your volume threshold too high. Perfect. Exactly, man. So the, the, the nutrition uh, uh, um, kind of synonym you gave works really well with that. But no question, man. If you can make progress on a lower amount of volume and that's going, going really well for you, do that. And ride that out as long as you can and then progress gradually and appropriately over time. Exactly. I mean uh... – for example, uh, I, I use this. I was talking to – it was a different different topic, but I was talking to, to my team, and a lot of them were struggling with comparing themselves to other people and that sort of thing. I said, hey, look, you can't compare yourself to other people, okay, because, you know, if you want to talk about – you say, well, this isn't fair that it's so hard for me to do this or that. Life's not fair, okay? But, like, for example, uh, Ben Escrow, our good friend, he squats just under 500 pounds at his very best. And he has to squat about 70,000 pounds of volume a week in order to make progress. I can squat 50,000 pounds of volume a week and, and make progress. Is, and I squat 650. I squat over 150 pounds more than he does. Is that fair? No. But it's also important to note that just because Ben can squat 70,000 pounds of volume per day, it doesn't make sense for me to go do that. Yep. And my training sessions are already long enough. <laughs> you know, yep. I've got I've got other things to do. I love to train, but uh, I will tell you that at a certain point, when you're when you're doing enough um, enough volume, you you it does tend to wear on you. Uh, when I was right doing that intensity block before nationals, uh, man, I was uh, I was pretty beat up. You know, so get by on the on the minimum that you can get by with, because then when you do stagnate. You can add in some more, and it's it's still not going to feel like you're spending your entire life in the gym. Um, and I think one other thing important to mention: we're talking about squatting and deadlifting, that sort of stuff. You can do daily undulating periodization for Smith machine rows or or you know machine preacher curls. You know, I think I think they do that in North Korea. <laughs> yeah. So so my 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 those are those are communist exercises, correct? Yeah, something something like that. Yeah. So, uh, th well, those are for our people who, who don't who don't believe in freedom, who don't believe in you know squatting and deadlifting. Um, but the the so the point is, I don't want people to think, well, I can't do DUP because yeah, absolutely, I, Lane. I think that's a really important point. You know, and, and, and I joke about this, and I'm sure you know myself and, and 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 you have a you know reputation of you know focusing on the main lifts, and I certainly do like to do that. Um, however, you know, somebody will say, oh. I can't do daily undulating periodization anymore because I, I don't want to do the main lifts right now. Or I, and I say, hold, hold on, you know, nothing about nothing about the inherent nature of undulating periodization means you have to do the main lifts at all. I, I recommend that you do, and that's how I like to program it. But all it is saying is that you're varying the training phases or you're varying your repetition range from day to day. You could do that with any exercise, any exercise. So um, you know, I think that's a misconception, and some of that is pro probably my fault. Uh, but it's a huge misconception. Oh, I can't, uh, you know, I have injury right now. I can't squat or I can't bench press. Um, so I can't do undulating periodization anymore. No, not at all. You can do that with any exercise. I know I will, um, you know, undulate with the overhead press with a lot of individuals and then you can do that. So if you, one thing that I don't talk about a lot is how to incorporate assistance work, especially if you're a bodybuilder. So that assistance work, if you have an undulation pattern of 10, 8, 6 on the main lifts, 
that you're doing, the assistance work you're doing after can follow that same undulation pattern. And the best way to program an assistance work in terms of intensity is that's a perfect time to utilize RPE, right? You're not going to go in and, uh, uh, you know, do a max on an isolation exercise, right? If you do, you're going to look silly. So you can <laughs> utilize an, you can utilize an RPE, right, to program in whatever you're doing for those isolate, for any isolation work you add in or even multi-joint assistance work like an overhead press or a push press uh, or if you have a front squat after squats or stiff leg, de stiff leg deadlifts, RDLs, whatever it might be. So those can follow a similar undulation pattern and you can use RPE to program those in uh, and that's a perfect way uh, perfect way to do that. Um, Lane, I, I'm sure you have some other things to get to but just as I took some notes I wanted to talk about progression here whenever we have a moment. Go and ahead. Then also, okay, great. Um, so I want to talk for a second about pro progressing from week to week, um, more a little bit about ingraining the block fashion. And then also a few minutes ago, Lane said that uh, uh, Mr. Esgro squatted just under 500 pounds. That, what he was saying is that uh, Ben squats some of the kilos and Lane and I squat all of the kilos. Uh, so if you're looking for information on how to squat only some of the kilos, um, I think uh, uh, Mr. DeNovo could help you out with that. Love, love you, buddy. Um, so so uh, we talked about progression. The information that we've given so far I think is very good. Um, but I do want to talk about going from week to week. So whatever your undulation pattern is and kind of the home base I like to start with and that we've talked about is a frequency of three times and an undulation pattern of eights on Monday, sixes on Wednesdays and fours on Friday. So let's say you're doing that at 70% Monday, 75% Wednesday, 80% on Friday. How do you progress? Okay, we do all that. I, I finish that first week. How do I choose the load for the second week? You certainly don't keep it the same because we know we have to integrate progressive overload. So there's a few ways you could do it. One would be to just add an arbitrary amount of weight saying, okay, I just want to add five pounds from week one to two or 10 pounds from week one to two and so forth. And you can do that and that'll work just fine assuming you've picked those intensities on week one that are not too aggressive. You should have room to grow by adding an arbitrary amount of weight. The second way is there's a, a good paper by Mann and colleagues from 2010 and it's called, it, has, it coins the terminology with the abbreviation APRE, that stands for Autoregulatory Progressive Resistance Exercise. Now, if you have that undulation pattern of 864, how this might work is, let's say on that Friday, that day you have fours, you have what I like to call a plus set, or what many people call AMRAP, or as many reps as possible, doesn't matter, whatever you want to call it, and on that last set, your target number is four, but you do as many as you can. So you have a built-in objective progression based upon how you do on that plus set. So let's say your target number is four, but you get nine or ten. That's really good. That means you're stronger than what the protocol calls for. Thus, you use the APRE model, meaning nine or ten is good. You could work in there with a nine or ten repetitions. You will increase the load by 15 pounds for the next week, or about seven and a half kilos. If you get seven to eight repetitions, you will increase five kilos or 10 or 11 pounds. And if you get five to six repetitions, you'll increase two and a half kilos, about five pounds. If you get four reps, you'll keep it the same. If for some reason you get less than that, you could all, always decrease the training load. So the APRME model was shown to be very successful in the literature. So essentially, it's individualized progression based upon how you did that previous week. So way one to increase weight with arbitrary amount of weight, let's say 10 pounds from week one to two, and then from two to three, I would probably decrease that, let's say five pounds, because adaptations will slow. But you could utilize APRE, and APRE could mitigate taking too aggressive or too small of an increase, because it depends on how you do. So let's say week one, you get nine repetitions. You say, great, I got nine reps on my four rep day, thus I'm gonna increase by 15 pounds. Let's say you go up by 15 pounds, and you get nine reps again. Well, that's great, you know you got stronger, and you're in the middle of the block, you're fatigued. So you could then go up 15 for the next week. If the next week you only got five repetitions, no worries, you only go up five pounds based upon APRE. So adding an arbitrary amount of weight and utilizing APRE. The third way is to just use an auto-regulation. Meaning, we have an RPE scale of one to 10, and this is something that I've been using a little bit lately. If we have an RPE scale of one to 10, one meaning little effort, 10 meaning absolute max effort, nine meaning we could do one more repetition, eight, two more repetitions. On your last set, 
just record an RPE. Let's say you have eight sets of four on that last day and you record an RPE of seven. That means you could do three more repetitions. So it means it was pretty easy. So you could maybe take an aggressive 10 to 15 pound increase for the following week and you should, so RPE should still be submaximal. But let's say on the eight sets, eight sets of four, you record an RPE of 10 on that last set. Well, you might want to keep the weight the same or jump just a little bit, maybe five pounds, mm -hmm. as to not go up too much. So I know that was a lot at one time, but the three options of progression that we just gave you were one, adding an arbitrary amount of weight, two, utilizing APRE, which is essentially a utilization of a plus or as many reps as possible set in progressing based upon how many reps you get, or an auto-regulation on a scale of one to 10. The lower the number on the scale is, the more aggressive the jump you take for the following week. So that's how you could progress from week to week. And you can also auto-regulate uh, and add weeks or decrease weeks. If I write a training block for four weeks and an 864 undulation, and let's say on week four, the plan last week, this individual is still getting 10, 11, 12 reps on that last week. Well, I might go another week because they're doing great. There's no reason to stop. But if after three weeks they can barely complete the protocol, I might taper early right, and get some recovery and then go toward the next block. So you can not only auto-regulate how much weight you're using that day or each week or, or how much you're going to increase for the next week, but you can even auto-regulate, hey, do I want to do another week or is it time to taper? So the possibilities there are really endless. Yeah, it seems uh, like a common thread with DUP, endless possibilities. Absolutely, man. If you're if you're still waiting for the uh, DUP uh, uh, download, I have bad news. It's like the magic supplement; it doesn't exist. <laughs> yes, give give me the DUP. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually change gears here. Um, we could talk about this stuff forever, but uh, you you have some very interesting concepts uh, regarding cardio, and I know you're you're engaged in a study right now on cardio. And so uh, I, 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 we're definitely going to have to have you back on in the future just because we're not going to get to everything we want to in an hour show. But uh, can you give us uh, – talk about your study that you're doing right now uh, with regards to cardio and uh, if you have any uh, thoughts on what you think the, the results – Okay, so that's a great question about our study and this study that uh, we're going to embark on, which is going to start in January – uh, is the thesis project of one of my students, Chad Dolan, who uh, has done a great job, and some of you guys may even know his name. Uh, so Chad's thesis is going to be looking at various cardio models of, of training, if you will, along with resistance training, uh, to look at body composition and strength and hypertrophy uh, over the course of about eight weeks or so. So the way this will work is, is there will be three groups. Each group will do the same exact daily undulating periodization training protocol on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Now, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturdays will be the quote-unquote cardio days. So group one will do a more traditional steady-state protocol. We'll do, we'll do HIT or high-intensity interval training. And then group three, instead of doing HIT or steady-state, will simply just lift more weights. And that, that weight training program will be designed in a circuit fashion, so more of a metabolic type of uh, circuit training on those days. So we're going to equate for time, and the question is, which of these is going to be not only best for body composition, but really skeletal muscle quality, strength, and hypertrophy? So if somebody was in prep, is it really advantageous for them to do some sort of cardio or HIIT, or could they not do this and replace it with some sort of circuit training, which would not only accomplish the task of caloric expenditure, but also would simply mean more training volume. And with more training volume, would that translate into more growth over that time? I think it's a really interesting question. And I think that we, the, the world or the, the, the figure bodybuilding world that I've, I've been, um, you know, gotten to know a little bit over the last few years has moved in a lot of part thanks, thanks to Lane and Ben and others that are doing such a good job to doing HIT rather than steady state cardio. And I think that's a good thing. And I think that's been, uh, pretty well accepted recently, and I think that's great. Um, certainly, HIT does not have any negative effects on training. But if we go back to our unskeletal muscle quality, but if we go back uh, to our question, is it optimal? Well, if if you're trying to be good at lifting weights, then maybe you should just lift more weights. So, if you can't squat or deadlift or something because you were sore from doing HIT, then my question is, why are you doing that? What if you just replace that day? with a weak body part or did something in a circuit fashion 
and you were able to accomplish the same task. So as uh, Mr. Esgro always says, are you doing cardio because you want to or are you doing it because you think you have to? It's possible that you don't have to. I do want to say, though, that this study is in its infancy so far, and I could be, I could be in, entirely, our hypothesis could be entirely wrong. I have no idea. And one of the reasons that Lane, I wanted to get Lane in on the study is that he doesn't necessarily fully agree with me. And that's awesome. You're not going to always agree. And if he has another position, that's great. That's a great thing because we can make sure we design an appropriate protocol and then we can really see what happens and find the answer. The other thing that's also going to be interesting is that the steady state group is only cycling for 30 minutes. How detrimental is that really going to be? Right? There is still limited research that compares HIT to steady state uh, in itself. So what will we find? I don't know. And the point is that we don't care what we find. Whatever we find is going to be awesome and hopefully advance our knowledge of what we can do, whatever happens. So I think it's a really cool study. And uh, Chad, along with uh, um, some other students, Justin and Alex, are, are doing a great job, and Tony, uh, of getting that going. So we'll see what happens. And hopefully, uh, um, you know, maybe uh, a year from now, nine months from now, whenever it's done, Lane, uh, on Physique Science Radio episode, uh, you know, 72, whatever it is, <laughs> uh, we can come back on and talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, just, I mean, I, I will tell you that um, I am becoming much more of a fan of specificity. So um, I don't know that I would say we disagree in what we think might happen, but uh, I do know that sometimes you do research and uh, you have this idea, it makes sense, your hypothesis makes sense, and then it ends up being the exact opposite of what you think it's going to be. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that's why I tell people, like, it's always a good idea. It's an important thing with science. Like, it's always... It's fine to have a hypothesis, and it's fine to say, hey, here's why I think this hypothesis is what it is. Yep. But eventually, you have to test that hypothesis, right? Sure. So this is why you know, I tell people, like with regards to like fasted cardio, for example, yes, there is data showing that if you do fasted cardio, you burn a greater percentage of fat from stored fat. Okay, great. But people will take that, and they'll say, well, that means you're, it's going to cause you to lose more body fat. No, right. that's not what that study said, Okay. okay. And when they actually examined fat loss, they see no difference between fed cardio and fasted cardio. Okay. Sure. And that, that is shown because there, you actually get less of a thermogenic response when you do uh, uh, fasted cardio. So, but the, the point being that you have to test a hypothesis. It's not just good enough to say, well, I, I think this is what it is. Right. And so I think that's something that's important for our young scientists out there and our listeners it's okay to have a hypothesis, but you got to test it. And that's exactly, you know, a good scientist puts their money where their mouth is. And that's what Mike is doing. So, uh, Mike, do you have anybody you want to thank or acknowledge or anything before we, uh, before we let you go? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just keep this really brief and mention a few people. Uh, you know, my students, the guys I just mentioned, Chad Dolan, uh, Alex Klemp, who just went on to, to do his PhD and graduated, uh, Justin Keylace, uh, uh, Tony Crowwinkle, these guys have been helping in the research lab. Really appreciate them. My colleagues around here. Uh, other uh, uh, professors and instructors, I really appreciate. Um, my research mentor back at Florida State, Dr. Kim, who uh, really, I, I can't say enough good things, such a good person, taught me so much. And then uh, Matt Gary, Susie Hartwig Gary, and Mike Desherer, uh, along with their good friend Ben Esgro, uh, and Eric Helms, all these people who I've uh, uh, pulled information from and, and uh, really been fortunate to meet and uh, uh, talk with. And Dr. Mike Ormsby up at Florida State as well. So uh, all those people, I uh, just want to say uh, uh, very much thanks uh, uh, to them and with everything along with my wife, who's a very good scientist in her own right. And uh, Lane, to uh, to you, man, for, for having me on. And so he who couldn't be here today. But, uh, you know, you inspired so many of us in this field. Uh, and like I said, I've stalked you for years before you knew who I was. So uh, I appreciate you having me on. It's an honor, man, and I hope to, uh, hope to be back. <laughs> well, the honor is all ours, Mike. I appreciate it. You flatter me as always. And you know, we got here. We got through an hour, and no talk about uh, about the Federal Reserve or anything like that. So well, I think well, our two things. I, I neglected my friend uh, uh, Dr. Linicky, who we uh, uh, talk about here all the time. But um, if we want to talk about monetary policy and uh, the state of the world on this fiat currency that we have, and uh, I could do that uh, real quick. It'd be great if the market could set interest rate rates for once. <laughs> I think we'll skip it for now, but when we uh, when we have our, our, our political show, uh, when we have our own political show, we'll bring you on. Sounds good, brother. I look forward to it. Norton Zordos, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we would win, but I'm all in. <laughs> all right, Mike. Well, it's great talking to you. 
I hope you, listeners, I hope you enjoyed our episode with Dr. Mike Zordos. This is Physique Science Radio. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening.